0: Welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that chronicles the contributions of black people all around the world to luxury fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Russ. This is episode eight, which means that there are only four more episodes left in the season. I know, so sad, but we do have to take a break. Season one is only 12 episodes long, but I promise you, after the break, I'll be back with more black fashion facts with better. Black Fashion Facts, I promise you you will love the podcast that much more after the break. But since we're still rocking for a few more episodes, let's go ahead and get into our spotlight for this week. So just like last week, actually, this week's spotlight is also going to be more fashion news focused instead of focusing on a particular person or organization and if you're new here let me explain to you what the spotlight is all about spotlight is the moment at the beginning of the show where i highlight a person or organization or platform that is really supporting black fashion culture that's paving the way for black creatives in the fashion industry Uh, and they're pretty much just doing their thing to help black creatives this week, however, our spotlight is focusing on a news story that highlights black fashion history. So how many of you guys, and I'm saying how many of you guys like y'all are sitting right next to me, but I'm going to pretend. So you pretend to how many of you guys are familiar with black opal? I know most of you should be if you shop at the drugstores or if you are in Walmart or Target, you've probably seen Black Opal. Well, Black Opal is one of the largest black-owned cosmetic companies in the world, and it has just been announced this week that they recently acquired Fashion Fair from Johnson Publishing Company. They announced that they would be relaunching Fashion Fair with a capsule collection as the brand initially launched in 1973. So for those of you who don't know, Fashion Fair is a subsidiary of Johnson Publishing, and Johnson Publishing is the company that's behind Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine. And they started out, well, Jet's, not Jet, was it Jet? Yeah, Jet specifically started out as one of the only publications, if not the, no, the only publication during its time Um, its inception to document black life. So Mr. Johnson, he wanted to create a magazine that was similar to Reader's Digest or Time at the time of its inception, that really documented black life and black people just being. There weren't any publications out there like that. And so Jet Magazine was birthed from that and that launched the whole Johnson publishing empire. To take it a step further, Mr. Johnson's wife, Eunice Johnson, she launched Ebony Fashion Fair, which was an annual fashion extravaganza. I wouldn't even call it an event, but it ran from 1958 all the way until 2009, and it was a traveling fashion show that traveled across the country and to other countries, and it showcased black models and black designers. And the reason why Fashion Fair was so monumental such an important piece of black history black fashion history is because it really uh, solidified the place of Eunice Johnson Ebony magazine and black models and black people within couture so to just give you a really really shortened version of the whole story Eunice Johnson spent a lot of money with a lot of designers overseas and just you know, purchasing these custom one-of-a-kind couture pieces, some pieces that the designers would make for her were things that they wouldn't even normally make for their clientele because, you know, us as black people, we're very colorful, we're very bold, we're flamboyant, and that's the kind of things that we like to see in fashion show, and that's what Ebony Fashion Fair was known for, for its flair, its over-the-top, its extraness, and a lot of these designers these French designers and these haute couture designers didn't really make things like that, but they would make them specifically for Eunice Johnson and she would have them in Ebony Fashion Fair in the shows. And if you've ever gone to one of the, fashion fair I think the most recent exhibit was like a 50 year celebrating fashion fair was traveling all around the world they showcase some of these one-of-a-kind designer pieces that were only owned by her so that's just an example of the power of not only the black dollar but the black influence in luxury fashion the show also highlighted black designers and black models and out of the show came Fashion Fair the Cosmetics line. And that was a line that was created to address the needs of the black models in the show because there wasn't makeup that could match their skin tones. You know, the same problems that we have today. So Miss Johnson created Fashion Fair the Cosmetic lines and that became the go-to cosmetic line for black women for a very long time. Like if you ask your mamas and your aunties I can guarantee you, I will put money on it, that they will tell you that fashion fair was the thing, like they either use it or they've heard of it. My mom does not wear makeup. I don't think she's worn a drop of makeup in her entire life. I don't even think she wore makeup on her wedding day, but she can tell you all about fashion fair. That's how big of a deal it was for black women. Now fast forward to 2019 and earlier this year, Johnson Publishing went bankrupt. And so they had to sell off a lot of their photos and they have the largest photo archive of black life ever. And so they had to sell off a lot of those things to, you know, settle their financial woes. So I was very saddened by that, that all of that black history in a sense is kind of just Stopping, like you know, th- this publication, fashion fair, a uh, jet, ebony, all of those things have been around for years, and it's such an important part of black history. And I hate to see it all go away. So I was very excited that Black Opal was going to be taking over Fashion Fair. They're the largest black-owned cosmetic company right now. And so I think it's only fitting for them to take on another legacy brand and to rehash it and to remind people of, its prominence in black history and to reestablish it so I look forward to seeing fashion fair come back to life I was never old enough to experience you know the greatness of fashion fair during its heyday but I'm excited to be a part of that to say that you know my mom and myself and my aunts we share this moment in history and you know this brand that has been a part of our entire lives it's black brand specifically we can say that it's been a part of you know generations So. Definitely excited about that. I'm gonna make sure to keep you guys updated on how that goes. And if you don't know or if you've never heard of Black Opal or Fashion Fair, Johnson Publishing, Jet Magazine, Ebony, I encourage you to do some research. And you know, maybe we'll come back and do a, a special episode on all of that because they're a very important part of Black beauty history, Black fashion history, Black journalism history, just Black history in general. They're all around Black excellence. Now moving along, our black fashion term for the week is Afrocentric. Now I know you've heard of the word before, but I'm just going to give it a little more context and relate it specifically to fashion so you can see how it ties in later once we start talking about our fashion figure for this episode. Now the concept of Afrocentricity was founded in the 1940s when the president of Senegal and a poet, um, both names that I have trouble pronouncing so i'm not even going to try but i will put it in the description on apple podcast so you can check it out but it's when they use the term negritude to describe the effects of western colonization on black people without any reference to their culture language or place and afrocentricity was the concept of black people relating back and referencing their culture language or place so that they're no longer in that state of negritude Keeping that in mind, an Afrocentric perspective of fashion um, usually refers to apparel that possesses African aesthetics and nods to African history as a creative expression for Black people on the continent and in the diaspora. This aesthetic usually incorporates wax prints or traditional textiles like kente cloth, country cloth, adira, mud cloth, and Even include some elements that are not specific to African culture, like bold, bright colors, and other types of patterns. Now, keep this definition in mind as we talk about today's figures because she was known to be Afrocentric before even being Afrocentric was a thing. Now, previously, I know we've only been talking about designers. I think for the past seven episodes, it's been just designers, whether that's been jewelry or hats um, or mostly clothing. But today I'm really excited, as I always am, (laughs) to be sharing the legacy of a woman who was a quadruple threat. So she was not only a designer, but she was mostly known as being a socialite, actress, painter, and designer. But above all, she was black and very proud to be it. She wore it in her Afrocentric designs and displayed it in all of her work. So really excited to talk about Miss Ruby Bailey right after this commercial break. So you want to start a podcast, right? I know it can seem really daunting and complicated to have to think through how to record it or how to edit it and even how to upload it. But don't worry about any of that. I'm about to give you the only tool you need to create an A1 top of the line podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start making money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Now, all you have to do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm, that's A N C H O R.fm, to get started today. Now, let's get back into our content. Ruby Bailey was born in Bermuda in 1905, and in 1912, at seven years old, she moved to Harlem with her mom and sisters. According to Bailey, during her high school time at Washington Irving High School, she was the only black student in the art and costume illustration class. Miss Ruby Bailey grew up during the Harlem Renaissance, and so she had the opportunity to experience both visual and performing arts, which led her to her path of becoming an actress and a painter. She participated in fashion shows, art exhibitions, and theatrical productions at places like the St. Philip's Episcopal Church, the Savoy Ballroom, and Small's Paradise. She was a member of many social and art clubs and a regular on the Harlem social scene, which by default made her a socialite. And as we know, socialites need an extensive and fabulous wardrobe. However, black people were not permitted in department stores, nor did they have access to mainstream clothing or other retail establishments because the North was also very segregated. So she had to make her own clothes, which was probably for the best because Miss Bailey had a flamboyantly expressive personality, one that you would associate typically with um, Harlem, New York, being extra, over the top, <laughs> all of those things, and so she created clothing that matched her persona perfectly. Her fashions were bold in pattern, texture, and embellishment. There are lots of intricate beading, um, and her sportswear had bold graphic beading, which followed the intricacies of the pattern on the fabric. She also utilized textural fabrics like hemp and straw, and full-size plastic fruit, seashells, beads, anything she could find. For her, more was more. Now she wasn't a designer in your typical sense in that she created collections to be held or purchased in department stores or opening her own stores. She designed for herself, modeling her own garments at Harlem hotspots and some of these fabulous functions that she would attend. For Miss Bailey, she was the perfect person to display her eccentric designs because it matched her personality to a T. And it kind of gave her a step above everybody else because she was in one-of-a-kind pieces. Ruby Bailey was also very Afrocentric and very proud to be black. She often used African prints and motifs to express her heritage and her blackness. One example of these creations was a zebra-printed African-inspired jacket that was featured in the New York Amsterdam News in 1949. Though she was relatively unknown by mainstream media, she still received recognition during the 1950s and 60s when she was most active during her design career. She was known among the Harlem and New York Circle for her Bugs cocktail dress, and it was a dress printed with webs and adorned with silhouetted spiders and jeweled beads worn to the Bugs kind extravaganza held at Lenox Avenue's legendary Savoy Club in 1953, for which she won an award at the Savoy Ballroom. Ruby Bailey was also a member of the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union as a master beater. In 1949, Hollywood costume designer Adrian saw some of her designs at the St. Regis Hotel and chose her, or chose them, to be adopted for his designs. She later worked for him as a professional beater. Adrian, whose real name is Adrian Adolph Greenberg, was the costume designer for The Wizard of Oz. That's what he's most known for. In the same year, civil rights activist and educator Mary McLeod Bethune invited Ruby Bailey to attend a conference in Harlem's Hotel Teresa sponsored by the National Council of Negro Women. This conference was the predecessor of the National Association of Fashion and Accessory Designers. And I don't know if you guys remember that from episode two, when we talked about Zelda Win Valdez, who was also a part of this organization. Now mainstream white fashion industry professionals like designer Molly Parnas and Vogue Managing Editor Esther Lyman were in attendance. And later that year, the National Association of Fashion and Accessories Designers was born And it was to help establish and promote quote-unquote Negro or Black designers into mainstream fashion. Being the proud Black woman that she was, it's no surprise that Ruby Bailey was not only a part of this organization, but personally invited by Mary McLeod Bethune when it started. Bailey was very conscious of the state of Black designers in the fashion industry at that time, as well as black people in general. Um, She understood that being black, probably limited her success and her recognition in the industry. During that time, as I state over and over in this podcast, that designers like Ruby Bailey, Zelda Winvaldez, Valdez, and Lowe, they were considered things like dressmakers or seamstresses, and they were rarely given the same titles as their white counterparts who were doing the same things. In an article written after her death, Ruby Bailey's longtime friend and lawyer stated that she was acutely aware that the fact that she was black held her back from reaching any stage of world or even national recognition as a designer. And she felt that she had the talent that would have merited that. And she absolutely did. And this talent is displayed in the 40 some odd handcrafted mannequins slash dolls that she created during her life. 29 of these figures are on display at the New York at its core exhibit in the Museum of the City of New York. Now Miss Bailey was not a fan of Barbie dolls at all because they were all so white so all of her dolls skin tone varied to match the complexity and the varying shades of black women. All of them looked completely different, each was one of a kind and they all had on makeup, lipstick, nail polish, lashes, hair, like a full look. And she created beautiful designs for them. She dressed her dolls in beaded gowns, leather suits, fur coats, African-inspired clothing, uh, and their hairstyles varied as well. So some had afros, cornrows, short blonde bobs, and each of the hair, the makeup, and looks were appropriate to the character or the persona that she had created for each doll. I mean, I'm telling you, some of them had snakeskin boots, sandals, gloves, jewelry like the whole nine. It was a look. Now, there isn't much documentation on exactly how many dolls she created, but 29 of them are in the possession of the Museum of the City of New York and 40 were found in her apartment after her death. But the point is she created or she handmade each one of these dolls to represent herself and her different personas, as well as different black women that she admired and knew in her life. It is my personal belief that these dolls were a representation of black women in general. We are all different. We come in various skin tones with styles different hair and personality and I would even venture and go a little bit further and say that it's a somewhat of a creative commentary on the personality of black women specifically you know Ruby Bailey if you think about us you know that one day we can be wearing our afros the next day we have braids the next day our hair straight the next day we got a lace front you know we're always switching up our styles and we're doing something different to represent how we feel that day or how we want to look that day and I think these dolls are a little bit of a not a reminder, but a note to people that we're not a monolith, we're different from each other and we're different on any given day and it's okay for us to be that, let us be that. Or I could absolutely be thinking way too deep about this and she was just creating beautiful dolls of beautiful women because she liked to do that. Miss Ruby Bailey was a true Harlemite living there until 2003 when she died at the age of 97. However, her designs and gowns are featured in the museum of the city of new york in their glamour new york and black style now shows and so she is finally 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 receiving the recognition on some level that she deserves for being an innovator for being a fashionista before being a fashionista was even in thing and ultimately being uh just a positive presence and voice in the black community And that's all I got, guys. Thanks again for joining me for episode eight. If you love this podcast, please subscribe or follow or whatever you can do on whichever platform you listen to. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at Black Fashion History Podcast. And of course, please, please, please do me a really quick favor. Rate us five stars. Write us a review. And join us again next week for another installment of Black Fashion fashion history. Bye-bye.